Please open your Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Chapter 1 was a long chapter. We had five sermons from that. This morning is sermon number 6 in our series. is the beginning of Luke 2, a very familiar passage. It'll be a joy to look at it with you this morning. And let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream from Clifton Park, New York, here at our community church. We invite you to be with us. Uh, to come and worship and meet God's people and find out all the help that God has here. Uh, So let's look at Luke 2, and we're going to look at the traditional Christmas story, verses 1 to 20, and that'll be our sermon text for this morning. And I'm reading God's word from the English Standard Version. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the uh, town, to his own town. Excuse me. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Thus far we read in God's holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey his word. Amen. Amen. Uh, This text is typically read in uh, here in North America in the winter, in December, around December 25th, as we celebrate the incarnation in our Christmas holiday. I know it's not Christmas. And I was hoping we might get to this in July and have Christmas in July. But that's not the aim here. This is God's word 
and we're looking at one of the books of the Bible, as is our practice from beginning to end, Lord willing, and we've come to the Christmas story. And so that's our text for today, even though it's not our national holiday and the other celebrations aren't going on. There's no stocking by the fireplace. And I think this can be a good thing. You know, the busyness of Christmas often causes us to neglect the great and significant lessons that we find in this text. And so today is a rich opportunity not to let it get lost in the shuffle. It reminds me that uh, uh, it needs to be unpacked with care. And I was thinking of packages at Christmas time. You know, our delivery services, whether it's the post office or one of the private companies, that's their peak season for delivering packages. And recent statistics uh, tell us that, uh, uh, I guess it's just two years ago, the postal service was ready to deliver, do you know how many packages per day? 28 million packages per day in the weeks approaching Christmas. 28 million packages. They're not all coming to my house. Um, And they will average 20.5 million packages per day through the remainder of December. That's a typical year. And uh, the Postal Service uh, is the busiest of any of the major shippers, but you know there are other shippers. And it, it can seem sometimes that you get box upon box, package upon package, or a lot of presents under the tree, and sometimes the great gift of Jesus uh, kind of gets lost in that accumulation of celebrating and packages. So I wanted to unpack Christmas by focusing on this text with you to see what Luke wants us to know and to learn what God's word sets before us. So let's unpack Uh, with three headings this morning. First, we're going to unpack God's providence. That's a theological word which talks about how God works out his will in the history of mankind, in the history of the universe, how he directs and orchestrates things so that what he wants to happen, happens. That's a, a very loose definition of providence, the rule of God. Not strictly God seeing things in advance, but God declaring and directing very actively. And that's a big question because we already know from our Bible knowledge that Jesus is going to be born as the son of God, the angel told Mary. And yet Mary lived in Nazareth, which wasn't anywhere near Judea and the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. And the prophecies, which we'll get to shortly, say Bethlehem has to be the place where Messiah is born. But Mary grew up in Nazareth. That's where her mom is. That's where she's expecting to give birth with her mother's help and perhaps other family members. So how is this going to happen? If this is the promised child, he's like 100 miles away. How is it going to happen that scripture will be fulfilled? Well, here's a, a glimpse at the providence of God as it tackles two of the problems that we start with here. First, the political scene, then the geographical scene. As Luke gives us this text, he sets the historical context. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. We know who that was. And we know that his decree wasn't just to get people registered. He wanted a little tax income. Uh, The two go together, and nobody doubts that. And the phrase, paying taxes to Caesar, is with us even today. 
as a byword. This man, Caesar Augustus, was uh, born Gaius Octavian, uh, and then he was adopted by Julius Caesar. And uh, upon Julius Caesar's death, he had adopted and declared that Octavian would be his successor. Uh, And so he became uh, uh, Caesar and then adopted the title Caesar Augustus and brought about perhaps a golden era of the empire, a hundred years or more of of peace without major world conflict. Caesar Augustus was on the throne from 27 BC to about 14 AD. And he became so well appreciated after he consolidated his power and restored the Senate and other things in the Republic. People called him the bringer of good tidings. And they started to venerate him even as Uh, Julius Caesar was deified in the minds of the Roman. Uh, So too was Caesar Augustus. Those things began early on. And it was no small empire. The Roman Empire covered over 3.3 million square miles of the known world. Huge. 70 to 100 million people. That's in the ancient world. And this decree went out. And it would probably be up to the local regions to orchestrate the details. It wasn't the case that on this one day, everybody move and that wouldn't leave people in place to receive the register. So it was probably something that was worked out in a period of time. And we're told specifically that in the city of Jerusalem and in the province of Judea, um, Quirinius, uh, the governor of Syria, was the one who orchestrated the local details. Uh, And Luke says something here that's very interesting. He says it was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's another registration that's mentioned. You can read about it in Acts chapter 5. But Luke here is careful to point out which of the two registrations of the census of the tax taking this referred to. And it was the first. I mentioned that because some people have questioned the historicity of the Bible. Because we know a little bit about when Quirinius was governor and it was later on. It wasn't at at 0 B.C. A.D. when Jesus was born. Uh, His role and prominence came later, but he's still involved with this decree, the first decree early on as governor of Syria. Either way, we don't want to get lost in the details. The political scene is set and we see one of the great ironies of the Bible How was Mary going to end up giving birth in Bethlehem? Well, as Dale Ralph Davis says, God used Caesar to get King Jesus to the city of David. It's as if he said, let's get Caesar to do something that will help. Or as Phil Reichen said, as Caesar thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. As Caesar worked it for himself, God worked it for himself. And just as we look at that political scene and those realities, Luke is telling us explicitly, implicitly, that the hand of God was at work. How are Bible prophecies ever going to be fulfilled? People would scratch their head at Isaiah 7, 14, 
uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. They shall call his name Emmanuel. They had no clue what was coming. They could guess, but they really didn't know. Or how from the, the root or the stump of Jesse's tree, according to Isaiah, would come a shoot, a branch, new life to the reign of David. That is a reference to Jesus. How would Jesus be born in the city of David? God moved the political machine. God is behind the levers. He is behind the back room filled with smoke where decisions are made. Because God is king and lord of all. And we see here his providence in this historic moment. Not just with the political scene, but with the geographic scene. Nazareth is not the city of David. It's up in Galilee of the Gentiles. The Lord picked Mary up there. He didn't pick a maiden in Bethlehem. He picked someone from Nazareth. He had his eye on Mary. And here it was, the ninth month of her pregnancy, and this decree comes about. And Bethlehem is 100 miles away. Can't we delay, honey? You know, they just want our taxes. Can't we show up a little bit late? What are they going to do to us? No, Mary didn't question. She went. And in God's provision, he had Joseph, an understanding husband to Mary, who would take her and the child, yet to be born, that trip 100 miles south to Bethlehem. I hope you know that Bethlehem is what was named in the scriptures, not just the line of David, but according to Micah 5.2, that prophetic name, that it would be the place where Jesus was born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, you who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Micah 5, 2, that great prophecy that names Bethlehem. So the Lord handles the political scene. The Lord handles the geography. He gets Caesar Augustus to do something useful. He puts it on the hearts and minds of Mary and Joseph to Say farewell to your mother. I know it's the ninth month. I don't know if I'll be back before the baby's born, but this we will do. The hand of God is at work and present. Do we see that? The pastor of Geneva, John Calvin, said, God directs their steps. Nor is the providence of God less wonderful in employing the mandate of a tyrant to draw Mary from home that the prophecy may be fulfilled. God had marked out by his prophet, as we shall afterwards see, the place where he determined that his son would be born. If Mary had not been constrained to do so otherwise, she would have chosen to bring forth her child at home. But God is at work. There are consequences and implications for us this morning, as we'll see in the applications. If this is how the providence of God works, we should respond with our own trust. God is at work even in our day, my friends. Our second heading this morning, we're calling it Unpacking the Savior, just to continue our, our image and our theme of unpacking Christmas, unpacking the providence of God. We see that in these early arrangements. But at the heart of our text today is the declaration about this baby to be born. And it's not just, oh, who is this baby? And somebody speaks. We have 
the presence of an angel. And not only an angel as a messenger, but backing him up, backing him up a multitude of angels. It only takes one angel to, to, to whoop a little army or to do this or that. God sends a whole troop, a whole battalion, a multitude. Did God send all the angels on that day? It's that significant. And what is made known by the angelic message but about who this Savior is? And we don't want to miss these terms. We want to summarize them under three headings. The first, uh, uh, the angels speak of the one who was promised. The one who was promised. What do we mean by that? Well, there were Old Testament prophecies that would be fulfilled. And here as the angel speaks in verses 9 and following, we see that reference to what was promised. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. Well, what was the prophecy that was being fulfilled? Well, he speaks that there is going to be a baby that's born. Was that prophetic? Oh, it was indeed. Do you not know your scriptures from the beginning, from the book of Genesis on throughout the prophets? How was God going to solve our sin problem? That mess that Adam and Eve got us all into? Through the birth of a baby to a woman. From the beginning, the proto-euangelion, the earliest form of the gospel, is in Genesis chapter 3, where God spoke that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That Eve, the mother of the living, would not only bear a child, but she would bear a savior. So when the angel declares... And we stroll right past it because we're often too busy at Christmas. We're unpacking this. The angel declares, born to you. A baby is born. The time has come. He has come. And some of those specific details about a baby being born, you can find even just by looking at, uh, um, uh, we looked at Micah, but look at uh, Isaiah, three different passages. Isaiah 7, 14 Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or perhaps you remember Isaiah 9, verse 6. For behold, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a baby. Or... Perhaps somewhat cryptically, but it refers to a birth. Is Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That refers to a birth in the family tree of David, the son of Jesse. That refers to the birth of a Messiah. There is one promise that fulfills the scripture from Genesis all the way through Malachi. And it's this baby Jesus. The angel says a child is born. The angel goes on to say 
in terms of promise, uh, refers to the city of David and the son of David, born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He's born in the city of David because he is a son of David. And what does that bring to mind? But all the scriptural prophecies that the Messiah wouldn't just be a priest, he wouldn't just be a prophet, he would be a king in the lineage of David. It was back in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord had made a covenant with David. You remember David is anointed in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel tells about the rest of his reign. And before David dies, God makes a covenant with David because he's laying the groundwork in the Old Testament for the New Testament king to come. That's Jesus. 2 Samuel, the Lord uh, speaks this way. For when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, a lineal descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house in my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And another verse from that chapter, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Lord spoke to David. It's no small thing to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy with genealogical precision, geographic precision. Jesus couldn't have orchestrated that. God does this. The one promised. And we heard also from Micah 5 to it named Bethlehem. And this one promised, this baby boy born to this family tree, reminds us of his humanity. In Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. There is, as it were, a second Adam who comes to secure for us a salvation, a new covenant. There's humanity emphasized here. So if we look at the Savior, the angels remind us the one who comes is the one who is promised. Also, the one who comes is the one who is able, ability, who will save us, who is able to save us. Uh, When Revelation answers those questions in its apocalyptic sense, they say, who is able to open the seals? Who is able to take the scroll? Who is able? Because we can't save ourselves. Even the best of us can't save ourselves or others. We need one who is able to save us. And so the angel says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And for the first time in the New Testament, we see the titles Christ and Lord joined together. The Messiah who comes is God himself. God has come down. Christ. Christos. It's just the Greek word for Messiah anointed one but he is also lord he is the divine son you know in the gospel of luke already in the first chapter as we arrive at this point luke has used the term lord over 20 times to refer to whom to refer to our maker our god the omnipotent one the almighty one and now the one that's born is lord you get the picture God incarnate. John's gospel, he 
he approaches it and describes it in his own language. He says, the word of God, the word which was in the beginning, which was God and was with God, created all things. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself. And so this one born is able because he is the divine son of God. He is the God of Israel himself. He's able to bring about the redemption that he had promised. He's promised, he's able, and he's the one needed. He's the one needed. This is where the rubber meets the road. Okay, he came, but why did he come? He came because of our need. And where does this come from? In the angel's words, it's not just announcing, hey, there's a king because we need a king. No, he says, there's born to you in the city of David a savior. And he is able to save. A savior who is able to save. Just using the title savior, what does that imply? But that we need saving. If you're uh, sitting on your front porch or your back porch and you hear sirens in the distance and they get closer, then you see vehicles with red flashing lights pull up to your neighbor's house. What do you usually think? Oh, how nice of them to pay a social visit to my neighbor. No. Those flashing lights and the first responders, whether they're firemen or police or EMTs in an ambulance, their presence, their role indicates there must be trouble in your neighbor's house. We all put that together. We all see what is implied. And we hope and pray that perhaps it's not much, just a a stove fire or a small injury. But it could be more. The presence of a Savior, the sending of a Savior, tells us what? That we need salvation. We are in trouble. And there's only one 911 call we can make for our sin our guilt, with God's wrath upon us. We have no hope of heaven unless Jesus comes to rescue us. He is the one needed. He is the one who will deliver and save from sin. And it's not just for the whole sinful world, but he comes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. His own people, God's own people need saving. And we talk about salvation and preach the Savior because even here in the walls of a church or to those who might be watching a church service on a Sunday morning, salvation is the need of all the descendants of Adam and Eve. And if you have not yet come to Christ, you are in your sins and God will deal with those sins. And you will pay God is not mocked. His justice will fall. Sin must be paid for. And if you don't have the Savior and the Savior's blood, the righteousness of Jesus, the salvation in Jesus, you got nothing but your sin and guilt. Jesus is the one needed. I sometimes worry at Christmas when we we try to 
remind people about Jesus by saying he's the reason for the season. I think a lot of people around us, especially in America, think Jesus is the excuse for material pursuits. The reason for the season sometimes falls short, my friends. I hate to say it because I've used that so much myself. We've got to be more specific. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. A Savior is born. Because you need him. I need him. I have him. Do you? One commentator has said, to receive the good news of the gospel, to understand that despite our background and failures, God reaches out to us with the loving message of peace. Receiving the gospel is not just understanding an abstract idea, but it is believing by faith that the glorious God of the universe is now pleased with us and speaks peace into our personal lives through Jesus Christ, his Son, our Savior. I think the Lord wanted us to look at Luke 2 today to see Jesus apart from our holiday traditions. And maybe this will change your life to receive the great gift of Jesus himself. There's nothing greater that you can gain this side of death, but life in Christ. Amen. Well, let's finally, we've got a text here that is 20 verses. What else are we shown here? We are also shown the responses to this message and to the working of God. We see the response described in the scriptures. So let's unpack the responses. They're worth a look Uh, We see the shepherds responding. We see Mary responding. But let me first pause and talk about uh, one group of respondents that you might gloss over. When we read the details of the birth of Christ, what did you hear? Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, that's all normal, and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough. That's not normal laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We hear about this at Christmas, don't we? There's no room, and so they're born out in the stable, or perhaps it was a building near a cave, and the cave was used for housing the animals. Either way, Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in a place where the animals usually bed down for the night. There'd be straw, there'd be odors, There'd be some animals, and there'd be a feeding trough, or if the family was too poor, just a dugout place in the ground, a bowl-shaped spot so feed could be put there and the animal would learn. A feeding trough. A bowl. That's where he's born, because there was no place for them in the inn. We, we don't want to dwell on that. What does that mean? Typically, uh, in those days to travel meant you stayed with other families and perhaps other relatives were to take you in. Perhaps Mary and Joseph got there and, and, and other family members had shown up in advance saying, we don't have any more room. There's other families with kids in all the places of the house. We just can't fit you in. So they had to go with plan B, the barn, 
You can't think of it as a Motel 6. So the family didn't take them in. The community didn't take them in and give them better accommodations. They were really not welcomed. So when the greatest event of all history, when God took on human flesh and was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't get welcomed. Phil Riken says, what kind of welcome did he deserve? Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have the creation itself also offer him worship, with the rocks crying glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is God the Son, and anything less than absolute acknowledgement of his royal person is an insult to his divine dignity. He deserved a welcome, and he got nada. No welcome. Part of the response that night, the greatest event that divides human history, nothing. No dignitaries, no CNN, no banners and streamers. There was a star overhead. God took care of that. No room. It provokes thought of what the prophet Isaiah said in his opening chapter the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib but Israel does not know my people do not understand he came to his own and his own received him not you see it wasn't just at Bethlehem says one there was never enough room for Jesus never really a welcome but for a few and we'll see some of those next week but the few. And you know what? History hasn't much changed. We're describing the incarnation of Jesus, which happened in history, and the world around us goes on its business. Nobody stops to cheer. Well, Christians are here. We're celebrating the incarnation. But you have to see, one of the responses to this was obliviousness, indifference. There were some wise men in Jerusalem working for Herod at the time. They knew what was going on. They knew where Bethlehem was. They'd seen the star. They were probably uh, trying to figure things out. But eh, we'll get to it tomorrow. We'll see what happens. Let me ask you, since you're here listening to my voice, is there room in your life, in your heart for Jesus? Does his coming cause you to praise and worship him? Does it change everything? I tell you, it changed everything for a band of unknown shepherds. Let's look at the shepherds' response quickly. Who were they and why did they come? Well, who were the shepherds? They were low men on the totem pole in terms of employment. A shepherd was pretty much untrustworthy. You kind of keep an eye on them if they came to town because they lived on their own outside. They were always religiously unclean because of their work with animals and all of those things. So they really weren't part of the worshiping community, at least not easily so. They were the outcasts, despised. And one historical record says their testimony wasn't even accepted in court because of all these suspicions and stereotypes. They were the low end, even below blue-collar worker. They were just, you know, they, 
it's just the way the culture viewed them. But why? Why do angels appear to shepherds? Why didn't the angel go to the mayor? Why didn't the angel go to the rabbi? What? Well, this is God's doing. Why? A couple ideas. Perhaps because David himself, who lived in Bethlehem, was a shepherd once, and a good one, and a godly one. Perhaps it was because of Jeremiah chapter 33 with some of its prophetic language about shepherds. Jeremiah 33 verse 13 mentions shepherds and verse 15 adds this messianic prophecy. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Shepherds and Messiah mingled in Jeremiah but I, I think the most obvious answer is, is the best for why. Because God wanted to show that access to this Savior, to this King, was open to everyone. And so you grab the lowest of the low so that nobody could say, oh, I'm not worthy. Well, if these guys can come, I could come. If Jesus came for sinners and these guys could come, I can come. I think it was to convey the access. So what was their response? The shepherds, how did they respond to the angels? Well, they got over the fear because they were commanded to fear not. They listen. And what's their response immediately in verse 15? They say, let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. Maybe they drew straws and left one guy with the sheep. We don't know. We don't know whether there's two or three or a half dozen or they gather a few more as they go into town. It would take them a little bit to walk into town. Then they had to look around. Anybody here just had a baby? No, go away. Anybody here just have a baby? They had to go probably house to house. Where they listened for the cry of a baby. Because Jesus, the baby, did cry. That's normal. They find him. And when they find him, verse 17, they reported the angel's words. Maybe verbatim. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angels gave us a sign, and here he is. He's, he's laying in the manger trough. Wow. They conveyed all of that, and it says in verse 20, that beautiful expression, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. They were changed men. They were joyous at what God had done. Somehow history, the Almighty had contacted them and they have this beautiful, small, it's not even a cameo, it's a part to play in the Christmas story. Their response is beautiful. And indeed, it seems that their response is a fulfillment of what Mary sang about back in chapter 1. Do you remember Mary's song? What the effects of the Savior's coming would be? She said in verse 52, He, God, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Some of the first human beings to draw near to Jesus, to look on him and to praise him were these shepherds. The smelly men of the field were welcomed in the presence of Jesus. Exalting those of humble estate and bringing down those mighty, that's going to go on and on. It happened. Caesar's plan and plot is really going to be his undoing, as it were. But there's one more response here, and we're told this at the end of our passage. In verse 19, the shepherds went away dancing. It said two things. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And I believe it was Mary who told Luke all these details for his gospel to be written. Mary, I think, was still alive and bore that testimony. What she had treasured and made sure to remember in detail, what do you do when you have a treasure? You keep it safe. But it also says she pondered these things in her heart. If you're studying Greek, this is an easy one to parse. It's got a prefix for uh, together, soon, and then balo for throw or ballistic. To throw together these things. And it's used to talk about letting these things come together in your mind and holding something before you to see how it relates. So the word ponder is an excellent translation. To let this revolve in your mind and these events and truths in their orbits and trying to figure it out. Mary... Her response was devotion and thoughtful reflection. Mary meditates on the truth. Mary takes it in and and, and ponders this, thinks this through, because that word becomes the foundation for her faith. She connects it with what the angel told her. She connects it with what the angel told Joseph. And she's piecing all these things together, as should we. I pause and point that out, as others have done, because Mary is really an excellent example of a reflective disciple. Too many Christians don't think and reflect and meditate. We know some stuff, and then we just go on our business. We don't often sit at the feet of Jesus. Mary was good at that. This Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as uh, one of Lazarus' sisters. Such wondering leads to a more robust faith. How would Mary ever endure the sight of her son on the cross? But knowing that all of God's revelations about Jesus would come true. Mary's reaction. Well, in closing, before we take communion, let me remind you of three things here. First, you need to know the historicity of the Bible and its message. Part of what Luke is doing, as he said in the first chapter, is to set out an orderly account. He's putting these things in their historical context because Christianity isn't like Buddhism with a bunch of sophist ideas or um, just parabolic truth and it's abstract. No, the message of Christianity is based on Christ, a historical figure anchored to historical people and places and times. And this passage is a key to that. We not only have the fulfilled prophecy, but we have the specific details. And we even have that guy's name, Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And it was the first registration. You see, Luke puts in the word first because he knows that there was a later one. And history remembers the later one, but Luke's referring to the first one. Do you realize that the Bible isn't just a Uh, Aesop's fable. It's It's a book of history. It's truth. Boys and girls, if you want to know what God has done, read the Bible. It's true, and it contains true history. There are no errors in God's word. We need to know it. It's historicity. That's a big word, but that's an important foundation. It's worthy of your study. It can stand up to the scrutiny of others. You know the story of Lee Strobel, a 
atheistic, uh, agnostic type reporter. He wanted to set out to prove that Christianity wasn't true and ended up writing a book. He was part lawyer, part journalist, called The Case for Christ. The evidence was compelling. I also think one of the purposes of this text is for us, secondly, that we would trust in the providence of God. We see how God worked through the political scene. We see how God worked despite geographic hurdles to accomplish what he promised and what he wanted to happen. You know what? That can be true. It is true in your life and in my life today. God is at work. And you know, in those days, it almost seems coincidental. It almost seems natural the way Caesar just happened to make a decree. Oh, you got to register. And you know what? Go to your hometown. And Quirinius gives the details. Joseph has to go to Bethlehem. My friends, it's not coincidence and it's not natural. It is the hand of our God moving through history. And it's at work in Washington, D.C., in Albany, in Clifton Park, and in human political scenes today as well. Our God is at work. We often don't know what he's doing. And some of his plans are to bring judgment upon guilty parties. We don't know all that God is doing. He's already sent a savior. But he is still Lord and sovereign. His providence is still at work. And it can operate in your life. And you need to acknowledge that. And of course, final application here is to believe in the unique one. The able one. The promised one. The Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You need to acknowledge that we all need saving. And Jesus is the one God has sent. And he was sent to bring peace on the earth. To be saved is to find peace with God. And a hope of heaven. A peace that passes understanding. A peace and joy that can never be taken from you. Because of who Jesus is. And because he came. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Christmas story, even read here in August. Father, your word is true. Your word is historic and accurate and helpful. It shows your hand. It shows your provision. It shows the appropriate response. Father, may we respond to your word with joy, with trust. May we rest in who you are and what you have done. May we obey what you call us to do. Oh, Father, teach us, use us, and advance your glory in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.